Hello and welcome to Snowy Sunday number 6, A Christmas Carol, Part 5. Suppose it should not be done enough. Suppose it should break in turning out. Suppose somebody should have got over the wall of the backyard and stolen it while they were merry with the goose, a supposition at which the two young Cratchits became livid. All sorts of horrors were supposed. Hello, a great deal of steam. The pudding was out of the copper. A smell like a washing day. That was the cloth. A smell like an eating house and a pastry cook's next door to each other, with a laundress's next door to that. That was the pudding. In half a minute, Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed but smiling proudly with the pudding like a speckled cannonball, so hard and firm, blazing in half of blazing in half of half a quartern of ignited brandy and bedight with Christmas holly stuck into the top. Oh, a wonderful pudding, Bob Cratchit said, and calmly, too, that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage. Mrs. Cratchit said that now the weight was off her mind, she would confess she had her doubts about the quantity of flour. Everybody had something to say about it, but nobody said or thought it was at all a small pudding for a large family. It would have been flat heresy to do so. Any Cratchit would have blushed to hint at such a thing. At last, the dinner was all done, the cloth was cleared, the hearth swept and the fire made up. The compound in the jug being tasted and considered perfect, apples and oranges were put upon the table and a shovelful of, and a shovelful of chestnuts on the fire. Then all the Cratchit family drew round the hearth in what Bob Cratchit called a circle, meaning half a one, and at Bob Cratchit's elbow stood the family display of glass, two tumblers and a custard cup without a handle. These held the hot stuff from the jug, however, as well as golden goblets would have done, and Bob served it out with beaming looks, while the chestnuts on the fire sputtered and cracked noisily. Then Bob proposed... A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us, which all the family re-echoed. God bless us, every one, said Tiny Tim, the last of all. He sat very close to his father's side upon his little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his as if he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Spirit, said Scrooge with an interest he had never felt before, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat, replied the ghost, and the poor chimney corner, and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, no, said Scrooge. Oh, no, kind spirit, say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race, returned the ghost, will find him here. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge hung his head to hear his own words quoted by the spirit and was overcome with penitence and grief. Man, said the ghost, if man you be at heart, not adamant, forbear that wicked can't until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. O oh God, to hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. Scrooge bent before the ghost's rebuke, and trembling cast his eyes upon the ground, but he raised them speedily on hearing his own name. Mr. Scrooge, said Bob, I'll give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the, I'll give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. 
the founder of the feast indeed cried mrs cratchit reddening i wished i had him here i'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon and i'd hope he'd have a good appetite for it my dear said bob the children christmas day it should be christmas day i'm sure said she on which one drinks the health of such an odious stingy hard unfeeling man as mr scrooge you know he is robert nobody knows it better than you do poor fellow my dear was bob's mild answer christmas day i'll drink his health for your sake and the days said mrs cratchit not for his long life to him a merry christmas and a happy new year he'll be very merry and very happy i have no doubt the children drank the toast after her it was the first of their proceedings which had no heartiness in it tiny tim drank it last of all but he didn't care twopence for it scrooge was the ogre of the family the mention of his name cast a dark shadow on the party which was not dispelled for full, for a full five minutes after it had passed away they were ten times merrier than before from the mere relief of scrooge the baleful being done with bob cratchit told them how he had a situation in his eye for master peter which would bring in if obtained full five and sixpence weekly the two young cratchits laughed tremendously at the idea of peter's being a man of business and peter himself looked thoughtfully at the fire from between his collars as if he were deliberating what particular investment he should favor when he came into the receipt of that bewildering income martha who was a poor apprentice at a milliner's then told them what kind of work she had to do and how many hours she worked at a stretch and how she meant to lie abed to-morrow morning for a good long rest to-morrow being a holiday she passed at home also how she had seen a countess and a lord some days before and how the lord was much about as tall as peter at which peter pulled up his collar so high that you couldn't have seen his head if you had been there all this time the chestnuts and the jug went round and round and by and by they had a song about a lost child travelling in the snow from tiny tim who had a plaintive little voice and sang it very well indeed there was nothing of high mark in this they were not a handsome family they were not well dressed their shoes were far from being waterproof their clothes were scanty and peter might have known and very likely did the inside of a pawnbroker's but they were happy grateful pleased with one another and contented with the time and when they faded and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting scrooge had his eye upon them and especially on tiny tim until the last by this time it was getting dark and snowing pretty heavily and as scrooge and the spirit went along the streets the brightness of the roaring fr the brightness of the roaring fires in kitchens parlors and all sorts of rooms was wonderful here the flickering of the blaze showed preparations for a cosy dinner with hot plates baking through and through before the fire and deep red curtains ready to be drawn to shut out cold and darkness there all the children of the house were running out into the snow to meet their married sisters brothers cousins uncles aunts and be the first to greet them here again were shadows on the window blinds of guests assembling and there a group of handsome girls all hooded and fur-booted and all chattering at once tripped lightly off to some near neighbor's house where woe upon the single man who saw them enter artful witches well they knew it in a glow but if you had judged from the numbers of people on their way to friendly gatherings you might have thought that no one was at home to give them welcome when they got there instead of every house expecting company and piling up its fires half chimney high 
blessings on it, how the ghost exulted, how it bared its breadth of breast and opened its capacious palm and floated on, outpouring with a generous hand its bright and harmless mirth on everything within its reach. The very lamplighter who ran on before, dotting the dusky street with specks of light, and who was dressed to spend the evening somewhere, laughed out loudly as the spirit passed, though little kenned the lamplighter that he had any company but Christmas. And now, without a word of warning from the ghost, they stood upon a bleak and desert moor, where monstrous masses of rude stone were cast about, as though it were the burial place of giants, and water spread itself wheresoever it listed, or would have done so, but for the frost that held it prisoner, and nothing grew but moss and firs and coarse rank grass. Down in the west the setting sun had left a streak of fiery red which glared upon the desolation for an instant like a sullen eye and frowning lower and lower, lower, lower yet was lost in the thick gloom of darkest night. What place is this? asked Scrooge. A place where miners live who labor in the bowels of the earth, returned the spirit, but they know me. See, a light shone from the window of a hut and swiftly they advanced towards it. Passing through the wall of mud and stone, they found a cheerful company assembled round a glowing fire. An old, old man and woman, with their children and their children's children, and another generation beyond that, all decked out gaily in their holiday attire. The old man, in a voice that seldom rose above the howling of the wind upon the barren waste, was singing them a Christmas song. It had been a very old song when he was a boy, and from time to time they all joined in the chorus. So surely as they raised their voices, the old man got quite blithe and loud, and so surely as they stopped, his vigor sank again. The spirit did not tarry here, but bade Scrooge hold his robe, and, passing on above the, above the moor, sped whither, not to see, to see, not to see, to see. To Scrooge's horror, looking back, he saw the last of the land, a frightful range of rocks behind them, and his ears were deafened by the thundering of water as it rolled and roared and raged among the dreadful caverns it had worn, and fiercely tried to undermine the earth. Built upon a dismal reef of sunken rocks some league or so from shore, on which the waters chafed and dashed the wild year through, there stood a solitary lighthouse. Great heaps of seaweed clung to its base, and storm-birds, born of the wind, one might suppose, as seaweed of the water, rose and fell about it like the waves they skimmed. But even here, two men who watched the light had made a fire that through the loophole in the thick stone wall shed out a ray of brightness on the awful sea. Joining their horny hands over the rough table at which they sat, they wished each other Merry Christmas in their can of grog, and one of them, the elder too, with his face all damaged and scarred with hard weather, as the figurehead of an old ship might be, struck up a sturdy song that was like a gale in itself. Again the ghost sped on above the black and heaving sea, on, on, until being far away, as he told Scrooge from any shore, they lighted on a ship. They stood beside the helmsman at the wheel, the lookout in the bow, the officers who had the watch, dark, ghostly figures in their several stations, but every man among them hummed a Christmas tune or had a Christmas thought or spoke below his breath to his companion of some bygone Christmas day with homeward hopes belonging to it. 
and every man on board, waking or sleeping, good or bad, had had a kinder word for one another on that day than on any day in the year, and had shared to some extent in its festivities, and had remembered those he cared for at a distance, and had known that they delighted to remember him. Also, um, just a quick break away from the story, now that we've come back. I'd like to say that I'm kind of half asleep while doing this, um, because, well, you know, life gets to you. Um, so earlier I may have said that this is actually part five or chapter five. It's actually part six or chapter six. So, uh, sorry for that mishap, but we shall continue now. It was a great surprise to Scrooge while listening to the moaning of the wind and thinking what a solemn thing it was to move on through the lonely darkness over an unknown abyss, whose depths were secrets as profound as death. It was a great surprise to Scrooge while thus engaged to hear a hearty laugh. Excuse me. It was a much greater surprise to Scrooge to recognize it as his own nephew's and to find himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room with the spirit standing smiling by his side and looking at that same nephew with approving affability. <laughs> Laughed Scrooge's nephew. If you should happen by any unlikely chance to know a man more blessed in a laugh than Scrooge's nephew, all I can say is I should like to know him to as I should like to know him too. Introduce him to me and I'll cultivate his acquaintance. It is a fair, even handed, noble adjustment of things that while there is infection and disease and sorrow, there is nothing in the world so irresistibly contagious as laughter and good humor. When Scrooge's nephew laughed in this way, holding his sides, rolling his head, and twisting his face into the most extravagant contortions, Scrooge's niece, by marriage, laughed as heartily as he, and their assembled friends, being not a bit behindhand, roared out lustily. He said that Christmas was a humbug as I live, cried Scrooge's nephew. He believed it, too. More shame for him, Fred, said Scrooge's niece indignantly. Bless those women, they never do anything by halves. They are always in earnest. She was very pretty, exceedingly pretty, with a dimpled, surprised-looking capital face, a ripe little mouth that seemed made to be kissed, as no doubt it was, all kinds of good little dots about her chin that melted into one another when she laughed, and the sunniest pair of eyes you ever saw in any creature's little in any little creature's head. Altogether, she was what you would have called provoking, you know, but satisfactory, too. Oh, perfectly satisfactory. He's a comical old fellow, said Scrooge's nephew. That's the truth, and not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offenses carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I'm sure he is very rich, Fred, hinted Scrooge's niece. Hinted Scrooge's niece. At least you always tell me so. "'What of that, my dear?' said Scrooge's nephew. "'His wealth is of no use to him. "'He don't do any good with it. "'He don't make himself comfortable with it. "'He hasn't the satisfaction of thinking "'that he is ever going to benefit us with it.' "'I have no patience with him,' observed Scrooge's niece. "'Scrooge's niece's sisters and all the other ladies "'expressed the same opinion.' Oh, I have, said Scrooge's nephew. I'm sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill whims? Himself always. Here he takes it into his head to dislike us, and he won't come and dine with us. What's the consequence? He don't lose much of a dinner. 
Indeed, I think he loses a very good dinner, interrupted Scrooge's niece. Everybody else said the same, and they must be allowed to have been competent judges, because they had just had dinner, and with the dessert upon the table were clustered round the fire by lamplight. Well, I'm very glad to hear it, said Scrooge's nephew, because I haven't any great faith in these young housekeepers. What do you say, Topper? Topper had clearly got his eye upon one of Scrooge's niece's sisters, for he answered that a bachelor was a wretched outcast who had no right to express an opinion on the subject. Whereat Scrooge's niece's sister, the plump one with the lace tucker, not the one with the roses, blushed. Do go on, Fred, said Scrooge's niece, clapping her hands. He never finishes what he begins to say. He is such a ridiculous fellow. Scrooge's nephew reveled in another laugh, and as it was impossible to keep the infection off, though the plump sister tried hard to do it with aromatic vinegar, his example was unanimously followed. I was only going to say, said Scrooge's nephew, that the consequence of his taking a dislike to us and not making merry with us is, as I think, that he loses some pleasant moments which could do him no harm. I am sure he loses pleasanter companions that he than he can find in his own thoughts, either in his moldy old office or his dusty chambers. I mean to I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. He may rail at Christmas till he dies, but he can't help thinking better of it. I defy him. If he finds me going there in good temper year after year and saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? If it only puts him in the vein to leave his poor clerk fifty pounds, that's something, and I think I shook him yesterday." It was their turn to laugh now at the notion of his shaking Scrooge. But being thoroughly good-natured and not much caring what they laughed at, so that they laughed at any rate, he encouraged them in their merriment and passed the bottle joyously. After tea they had some music, for they were a musical family and knew what they were about when they sung a glee or catch, I can assure you, especially Topper, who could growl away in the bat and the bass like a good one, and never swell the large veins in his forehead or get red in the face over it. Scrooge's niece played well upon the harp, and played, among other tunes, a simple little air, a mere nothing you might learn to whistle it in two minutes, which had been familiar to the child who fetched Scrooge from the boarding school, as he had, re as he had been reminded by the ghost of Christmas past. When this strain of music sounded, all the things that ghost had shown him came upon his mind. He softened more and more, and thought that if he could have listened to it often, years ago, he might have cultivated the kindnesses of life for his own happiness with his own hands, without resorting to the, without, without resorting to the sexton's spade that buried Jacob Marley. But they didn't devote the whole evening to music. After a while, they played at forfeits, for it was good to be children sometimes, and never better than at Christmas, when its mighty founder was a child himself. Stop. There was first a game at Blind Man's Bluff. Of course there was, and I no more believe Topper was really blind than I believe he had eyes in his boots. My opinion is that it was a done thing between him and Scrooge's nephew, and that the ghost of Christmas present knew it. The way he went after that plump sister in the lace tucker was an outrage on the credulity of human nature. Knocking down the fire irons, tumbling over the chairs, bumping up against the piano, smothering himself against the curtains wherever she went, there went he. He always knew where the plump sister was. He wouldn't catch anybody else. If you had fallen up against him, as some of them did on purpose, he would have made a feint of endeavoring to seize you, which would have been an effort 
which would have been an affront to your understanding and would instantly have sidled off in the direction of the plump sister. She often cried out that it wasn't fair and it really was not. But when at last he caught her, when, in spite of all her silken rustlings and her rapid flutterings past him, he got her into a corner whence there was no escape, then his conduct was the most execrable. For his pretending not to know her, his pretending that it was necessary to touch her headdress, and further to, further to assure himself of her identity by pressing a certain ring upon her finger and a certain chain about her neck, was vile, monstrous. No doubt she told him her opinion of it, when another blind man being in office, they were so very confidential together behind the curtains. Stay tuned for next week's installment on Sunday.